You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, So let's open up to Psalm 51. So it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit for me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We uh, often talk about relationships being complicated. Have you ever been in a complicated relationship? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice recovery. (laughs) Uh, Think of a couple of girls, the great friends, besties, really hang out together a lot, really care for each other, talk for hours. Um, But, you know, even in a great friendship like that, sometimes... These girls let each other down. Sometimes they don't totally understand each other. Once one of them sent a text to the other and she took two minutes to reply and it was like, oh, man, is this relationship over? Um, Then one of them gets a boyfriend. Oh, that's complicated. And so the other one kind of has to sign out. And then she breaks up with her boyfriend and that's complicated. Yeah, ever, ever been in this kind of stuff? We've got five kids, first kid. We thought we had it sorted. Like, God just gave us a dream baby. Um, he, he was a little perfectionist. He was good. A glance was as good as severe discipline. Uh, just a really easy kid. Number two, a little bit harder. Number three, 
it was number four, all hell broke loose. <laughs> we only did one more kid after that. Like, it just got complicated. Uh, you probably won't believe this, but some churches are complicated. Uh, I know Darabin isn't, but trust me, I've been around churches. A, a church community that works is a miracle of grace, really, isn't it? A bunch of different people from different backgrounds, different expectations, different passions, different desires. Uh, they, they come together, and all those people are imperfect. And so little wonder, actually, that church is often complicated. Relationships are complicated, and that's why they're so great. <laughs> if, if a relationship's not complicated, you're relating to a machine. Predictable, non-responsive, programmable. And people aren't like that. There are constantly changing dynamics in our lives. And a healthy relationship is not one where we're automatons, but where we're learning and growing and struggling and grieving and sharing and wrestling and despairing and celebrating. It's complicated, but rich. And exactly the same is true of our relationship with God. It's complicated. It's complicated relating to someone you can't see. It's complicated relating to a holy God when you're a sinner. It's complicated getting to know him and learning to trust him. And it's complicated because our lives are complicated. Our lives go up and down. I'm all over the place. God is steady. But that makes it complicated. Complicated but rich. Now, if you want a commentary on the rich complexity of relating to God, I suggest you read the Old Testament, all of it. Um, that's actually our text now. Our text is Genesis 4 to Malachi 4. Um, I was going to get you guys to read it. Martin didn't want to read it. I don't know why not. Uh, but we come in this massive chunk of the Bible to the next two stages in the great drama of redemption. The little diagram I've got on page five of your booklet if you want to refresh your mind about where this is going. In Acts 1, the act of creation, we focused on beauty. Now, with Act 2, we go to chaos. I don't know what you think of when you think of chaos. Uh, the parents here might think of their kid's bedroom. Uh, looking at some of you, probably think of your hair. Um, I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, uh, maybe you think about the House of Parliament in Canberra. In Genesis 3 to 11, there's chaos, the absolute opposite of beauty. Genesis 1 to 2 is a story of transparency and intimacy and pleasure. It was paradise. And I often think, if only the Bible finished at the end of Genesis 2. I mean, it'd be a lot easier to do Bible study for a starter. Uh, I'd have less to teach at Bible college. But, you know, there's another 1,189 chapters to go. And the next few chapters are an escalation of 
violence, greed, immorality, pride. In the next few chapters, three universal judgments, the curse, the flood, the scattering of the nations at Babel. And it all began when Satan came and questioned God's word. He tempts Eve, who tempts Adam, and they choose to distrust God. And immediately, their disobedience led to disaster. Now, we, we see that on small scales all the time, don't we? Um, if, you, if you're with a little kid in a shop where there are all sorts of precious, breakable things... What do you say to that little kid? You know, like he's about three and he's a little tearaway. You say, just don't touch anything. Keep your hands by your side and don't touch. Try not to even look. <laughs> and then, you, you know, you're in the next little aisle and all of a sudden you hear a smash. Oh, no. And that's how we've got to read Genesis 4, 3 to 11. We just go, oh, no. Oh, that's awful. There was such beauty. It was, it, it, it was lovely. There was transparency. There was innocence. There was, there, there was love. There was relationship. It was so good. And then, oh no, like, why did they do that? Why did they distrust God? Why did they go their own way? Why did they think a piece of fruit was better than the beauty of God and relationship with him? Why did, why did he kill his brother? Why did Lamech you know, get all these wives? And Why were they murderous? Why did Noah get drunk even after the second start? Why did they build a tower to the heavens to try and make a name for themselves? It's like it's just awful. It's it's just dreadful. And but but what happens is once paradise is lost, once it's gone, an endless chase begins. Because we're hardwired for what we had in paradise. We're hardwired for beauty and for love and for intimacy. And so evicted from Eden, we'll still chase that. Our hearts crave those things. So cut off from God, we now seek beauty anywhere and everywhere else. In possessions, in education, in relationships. We seek paradise, well, and drink and travel in fun and entertainment and dreams of beauty and wealth and acceptance, we pursue our plastic Edens. And that's the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is putting anything in this world in the place of God. Now, in some other cultures, that might be a stone god. But for us, it's more likely to be a desire a career, a person, a child, a church ministry. Anything that we look to for our ultimate satisfaction and joy and pleasure other than God himself. G.K. Chesterton said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing. He worships anything. But the problem is, the things we turn to now don't satisfy us. So what do we do? <laughs> we tend to just chase harder and harder. 
We run more doggedly after those things that don't actually satisfy our souls. One relationship after another. One movie after another. One drink after another. One holiday after another. One success after another. Don't don't you find we are easily obsessive? And it's not just the big-ticket addictions. Drink, gambling, drugs... No, it's our everyday obsessions. The workaholic. The shopaholic. The sportaholic. Our addiction to entertainment. To Facebook, to social media. Our addiction to busyness and noise. And activity. We chase and chase and chase. And the more we chase, the further behind we leave God. And in the middle of these chapters, Genesis 3 to 11, we find what I think are perhaps some of the saddest verses of the Bible. Look at Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. The ESV says... Grieved him to the heart. How sad is that? The chaos of sin does not merely break God's law, it breaks God's heart. This is personal. It's personal because God made us for Himself, He wants us to delight in His beauty. He wants us to be satisfied in him. And he's deeply grieved by our idolatrous chase. So how, how do we live this part of the story? How, how do we live the chaos part of the story? We live this by acknowledging the chaos of our own hearts and acknowledging that we have grieved God. The problem isn't just the world out there. The problem is the world in here. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. I've sought satisfaction in a thousand things other than God himself and the Lord Jesus. I've traded relationship with God for mere trinkets, and I keep doing it. I know Jesus. I know how good he is. I love the gospel, and I still make endless stupid choices, and I stuff up relationships, and and I waste time on meaningless things, and I sin. I sin. There's chaos in my own heart. And it 
grieves God. And so actually living this part of the story is just fessing up to that. And I want to simply ask you, are you in a habit of daily or very frequently confessing the chaos of your own heart? It's counterintuitive, really, isn't it? Because we tend to think that cover-up is best, hiding it is best, justifying, minimising, excusing. But it is as we confess our sins, we find that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David spent perhaps a year after committing adultery with Bathsheba trying to minimise, run away. But God chased after him and exposed to him the chaos of his own heart. And eventually he penned that beautiful psalm that helps put in our mouths words of confession. Friends, confessing will not crush you. It feels like it will. Confession will not crush you. Hiding sin will do that. It says in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess the trans- my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my soul. We need to be men and women who readily, constantly, it's probably daily, depends how often you sin, <laughs> it's probably daily, confess the mess of our hearts, the chaos that we are in and that we're causing. And we come back to a saviour to be cleansed and forgiven and renewed. It's as we confess the chaos of our hearts that we enter into more relationship with God. And that's the next stage of the story. Let's move on to stage three in the Bible's great story. Uh, We've already knocked over Genesis 3 to 11, so now we just... um, All we've got left to do in the session is is Genesis 12 to Malachi 4. Um, Is it possible in a few minutes to say what all that is really about? No. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But, But I think there is a pulsating heart to the Old Testament. The pulsating heart to the Old Testament as a whole is relationship with God. Relationship with God. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, God starts again. Started in Genesis 1, he starts again in Genesis 3, he starts again in Genesis 5 and 6. Now he starts again in Genesis 12. He chooses one man. Abraham, old man, no kids, pagan background. It's not a very promising start. Uh, Tells him to go to a country, I'll tell you where. Doesn't even tell him which one. 
This is all hard stuff. But there's a reason that Abraham gets up and goes, and that is God makes to him massive promises. They're in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. He promises to turn this one old man with a barren wife, promises to make him into a great nation and to make his name great. That's what the people at the Tower of Babel had wanted. They'd built a tower to make their name great, and God knocked it down. And God says, now I'll take you and I'll make you great. And he promises then to bless him. Ever since Genesis 3, God's people, have, uh, people on earth have been living under God's curse. But now God promises to turn away the curse and to bring blessing. Abraham and his family will live under God's favour. He'll prosper them. He'll watch over them. He'll protect them. He'll provide for them. And he promises, moreover, to bring that blessing to the ends of the earth. This is not just an Abraham thing. All nations will be blessed through you. God has a mission to the nations. The nations that he has just scattered in Genesis 11 will now come under blessing if they look to Abraham and his seed. Well, these are massive uh, promises, and they're, they're promises that God is going to undo sin. God is going to undo the chaos. God's going to undo the curse, and he'll bring humanity back to himself, back into relationship with him. God wants relationship even with sinners. And he'll now bend over backwards to make that possible. One of the ways that we know that God is dead set on relationship is that throughout the Old Testament, he keeps making covenants with people. What's a covenant? Well, um, nearly 35 years ago, I made a covenant with a girl I'd met. Uh, she was a really nice girl, actually. Uh, I liked her a lot. We dated for about 18 months. And then I said, well, let's make this thing legal and binding and lifelong. And so we entered into a covenant with each other. It wasn't a contract. It was a covenant. A contract says, I do this and you do that. I, I work these hours for you as my boss and you pay me X amount. But we didn't enter into a contract with each other. We made promises to each other. We pledged to love each other. I have never signed that with an employer. I've signed to work. I've never signed to love my employer. And no employer has signed to love me. And I promise to be faithful to her and only her for life. I've never signed that with an employer. You have that in a covenant. You don't have that in a contract. It was a formal, binding, legal agreement to have an exclusive relationship of love and faithfulness. And that's what God keeps doing in the Old Testament. Multiple times. Time and again, the first covenant is with Abraham. We, we sometimes call it the covenant of grace that begins there. God's, God's pledging to form a worldwide multi-ethnic people for himself whom he will save and love and restore. That 
covenant's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but that's a story for another day. Then there's a covenant uh, with Moses. Once, once that people has been formed, God comes and forms the Mosaic or the Sinaitic or, or the old covenant where now he pledges his love and his faithfulness to that nation and he gives them a law uh, so that they will know how to love him back. And that covenant's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That's a story for another day. And then he gives them another covenant. He makes a, a Davidic covenant, a covenant with David, where he promises this nation to give them a king forever, a righteous king, a justice king, a king whose reign will be beautiful. And that covenant's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but that's a story for another day. And all those covenants, which are relationship covenants, point to the need for another covenant, which he eventually promises. We call it the new covenant. A covenant where God will now write that law on their very hearts, where he'll internalise that relationship so that they really can love him and be faithful to him. And that covenant's fulfilled in Jesus, actually. But that's a story for another day. The point I simply want to make is if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God because he wants relationship with his people. Relationship is, I think, the pulsating heart of the Old Testament. But what's it like to relate to God? What's it like to relate to God? What's it like to be in relationship with a very relationally intentional God? I think one book of the Old Testament shows us that, perhaps more than any other. The book of Psalms is a window into the souls of God's people. And what the book of Psalms shows us is the rich complexity of relating to God. Just think about the different kinds of psalms that there are. There are some psalms that show us what it is to praise and worship God. Psalms that show us how to stand in awe of Him. Psalms that help us delight in Him and celebrate His love. Psalms that dwell on the beauty of creation and the beauty of the God of creation. But then there are other psalms that Show us how to grieve and lament. In fact, one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament, psalms of complaint. They show, psalms show us how to pour out a broken heart to God, how to express disappointment to God, how to wonder in the presence of God what on earth he is up to and why he isn't acting and why he isn't hearing and why he isn't answering our prayers. That's part of real relationship with God, agonizing in the presence of God. And actually you could add to those the psalms of imprecation, the imprecatory psalms, which teach us how to pray against evil and plead for justice to be done and judgment to come. And then there are psalms like Psalm 51 that we read before that teach us how to confess sin. Psalms that teach us how to come clean and be honest before God and, and own up to the chaos of our own lives. 
And then there are psalms that teach us how to delight in God's word. Psalms that teach us how to honour God as king. Psalms that teach us how to pray boldly. Psalms that teach us how to rest in the Lord. Think of Psalm 23. Psalms that teach us how to live wisely. The whole soldier kicks off that way with Psalm 1. The Psalms teach us how to relate richly and honestly with God. We tend to want a simple relationship with God. God, just tell me what to do. So that's a bit like a wife who says to her husband, I just don't feel like you love me. And he says, okay then, well just tell me what to do. Like how male is that? Just ridiculous, like he does not get it. It's not about what to do. Good relationship isn't a matter of do this, do this, do this. That's religion. God has not drawn us into a religion where there are external acts and, and protocols and rituals and ceremonies and things you've got to do, and if you do those things, you have a good relationship with God. No, that is not how it works. Matt Jacoby, in his book, Deeper Places, on the Psalms, writes this, and I, I want to read this paragraph. Listen to what he says. To have a relationship with God is to share life with God. At the centre of the sharing of life is a constant flow of communication, expressing joy when we are happy, showing gratitude when we are blessed, complaining when we feel let down, crying when we feel abandoned, supplicating when we're in need, raging at injustice, delighting in goodness, lamenting hardship and celebrating bounty. How do we live this massive part of the Bible story? We live it by persistently engaging in rich and honest relationship with God. That's what God's calling us to, rich and honest relationship with him. So as I land now, these two stages that we've just just glanced at, really, chaos and relationship, I think it's necessary that we each ask ourselves, what's my relationship with God like? Ask yourself that now. What's your relationship with God like? Well, I don't, I don't know what you're immediately saying in your head. Maybe you say, well, it's okay. Maybe you say, it's pretty awful, really. Maybe you say, fantastic, it's great. Uh, maybe you say, it's non-existent. Maybe you never had a relationship with God and don't really even know what a relationship with God is. But of course, the problem with asking the question, how's your relationship with God, is... What's the measure? How, how do you know whether it's okay or good or bad or whatever? I want to suggest just one 
there are many marks of a, of a healthy relationship with God, but I just want to suggest one mark of a healthy relationship with God. You have a healthy relationship with God if there's a rich complexity to how you relate to Him. I don't know if that's the answer you were expecting, but I think it's what the Bible teaches us. You have a healthy relationship with God if there is a rich complexity to it. And, and so it's, it's, kind of, it's this kind of complexity. Sometimes you just stand in awe of God. Sometimes you're blown away by His grace and you're just so thankful for what He's done for you and astounded, amazed that He's loved you and forgiven you. And, and sometimes you just have the sense God is so good. And then sometimes you struggle with yourself so much and you can't believe what a wretch you are and you feel cold and distant and you agonise over where you're at and you fear that you have grieved God. And then sometimes you're wrestling with God and you are just pleading with God to hear you and to do something and you're wondering why he's not answering your prayers and why he doesn't seem to be doing anything and you feel desperate for his help and you can't understand why he doesn't give you a sense of his nearness. You're wondering if he's even there or if he even cares sometimes. But then sometimes... You're resting in the Lord, and it's like knowing God is just the most peaceful and calm and gentle and wonderful place to be. And you're saying to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd. I do not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So sometimes it's all, all those things. And that's before breakfast. <laughs> and what happens after breakfast? Well, you talk to him about everything. You talk to him about everything. You talk to him about your fears, your hopes, your loves, your longings, your pains, your griefs, your sin, your past, your present, your future. Talk to him about big things. Talk to him about little things. You have a healthy relationship with God when almost daily there's a rich complexity to how you relate to him. And actually, you may well find that real depth of relationship comes in the polarities, the joy amidst sorrow, the hope amidst desperation, the praise through tears, 
the peace in the storm. That kind of relationship with God is possible through the work of Jesus. But that's the next stage of the Bible's story. And so you have to wait till tomorrow to find out how to get it. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the rich complexity of relationship with you. Thank you that you want us to be absolutely real and honest with you. That we don't have to pretend or mask or hide uh, we, don't, we don't have a relationship with you through doing certain actions or performing religious duties. We thank you that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God and you've drawn us into relationship with yourself and you want us to be absolutely real with you. And thank you that you, you can cope with our sin and our questions and our fears and our doubts. And you're worthy of our praise and our joy and our trust and our hope. And we just pray this morning that all of us would grow in this kind of healthy relationship with you where we are absolutely real before you, our God. Please lead us there for Jesus' sake. Amen.